0: A greetings this morning to everyone has come out and uh been a blessing to hear what we have heard already. And the songs that we have sing sung that minister the words minister so much to my heart. I know we're not a big group. I know that the auditorium doesn't ring And I know that it's, you know, we could be at a place where it would really go, but those songs and those words still have those precious meaning, and you can get a lot out of that. So, and the positive thinking, positive message, my message will be very positive at the end. It will be not so positive at the beginning. So that we'll trust it'll come out of the right place. Why don't we just stand again, if you could, for a word of prayer. So Lord, we are grateful to you for your great love and mercy that you've had to us. I pray, Lord, for each one here, that uh, our hearts, each one of us, be open to your word, to your truth, and i pray that you would truly minister to each one of us and prepare us not only to walk with you but also to um to be to be that kind of person in the parking lot to spread your peace and your joy and your salvation with others that we be full of it ourselves and overflowing and share it with others who are do lack it or do not have it. Also pray for each one here, Lord, that uh, is not filled with your salvation, and pray, Lord, that there would be a filling, an instruction, a uh, a, a dedication, and a uh, beginning, Lord. We just thank you for the work that you have done and will do. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. I thought I would speak on this subject this morning. And I wonder how many of you think that is a positive message. We want to start with that subject this morning. Sin. And you might say, well, that's a wrong focus. <laughs> it's a wrong focus. Uh, it, and if we would, that's all we would focus at, that would be a wrong focus. It is. I mean, that song that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes on Jesus. But this morning we're going to turn our eyes a little bit on to why Jesus came. Now, I I didn't know it when I actually um, started the message earlier this week, but I'm using the example that I had used before. I only realized it later on. But uh, some of you have forgotten it and the rest won't mind hearing it again. So the bumper sticker. Jesus is the answer. That's true, and it's very true, and it's universally true. But someone may ask, and rightfully so, what is the question? So you would go down the road and you would say, 144 is the answer. You might ask, well, what's the question? It doesn't mean anything to you unless you have a question. But if you're a student and you have the math question 12 times 12 and you don't know what the answer is because you don't know how to do the figuring and the wrong answer will fail your test, you have a problem. And when someone comes to you and describes to you How to do the calculation and come up with the right answer, then that means something. It will mean a lot. So Jesus is the answer this morning. So this morning, we're going to look at the focus on the question. We're going to look at the problem and we'll arrive at the answer as well. So I have three points. What is sin? Number one. Number two is, why is that a problem? And number three, what is the answer? So, we're going to be preaching the gospel this morning. I love to preach it every so often. Just come back to the pure gospel message. I mean, we need many other messages too, but that's it. So, what is sin? Is sin something that you can see or touch or hear? When you hear something, can you say that is sinful? <laughs> if you say that is sinful, on what basis do you say that is sinful? How can you say that? I came across this interesting thing and I and, and what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna I'm gonna to study sin we're gonna back way up further back than we normally do. In other words, if you go I'm not sure how to explain that. So anyhow, we're going to step further back than most of us normally do. We're going to step further back to a little bit more where maybe the world would be or where the general society would be at. To look at this thing of sin and then come closer in. I heard of this uh, woman who was considered to be the world's smartest person. Uh, On IQ level, she had the world's uh, highest IQ IQ. And IQ varies from people, from person to person, and there are some people with a lower IQ and some with a higher IQ. And when you have a high IQ, you can, your mind goes a lot faster and you can calculate complex things and you can think in various ways that someone with a lower IQ can't. And when you get to a a very low IQ, it's more simple. Uh, Simple problems simple jobs, and simple, in other words, they don't don't do complex things as well. It's the way God made us for various reasons. But this woman is considered the world's smartest person. So she was asked this question, and that is apparently, in this situation, she was at a place where people could ask her questions. So one of the questions that was asked is, what is the most basic science of all? I see Eldon isn't here, so I can be wrong this morning, right? <laughs> and I haven't seen him anyhow, or is he here? He's not here, okay. <laughs> so this is her answer. She said, well, biology, which is the science of life, reduces to chemistry, which is the science of compounds and substances, which reduces to physics, which is the science of the table of elements and energy and natural law. So you go the whole way down to there and said physics is the very basic. The smartest person in the world said that the ultimate science that underlines all other sciences is physics. That is as far down the foundational as you can go. Physics is the ultimate reality. Now, if someone says that physics is the ultimate reality, what kind of worldview do they have? Does anybody want to venture? We call it a naturalistic worldview. That stuff, physics, physical things is all there is. And In a naturalistic worldview, what is sin? Is there sin in such a worldview? But we know, and I think everyone here will know and understand that physics is not the ultimate reality. (laughs) There is there is something or someone behind this biological and chemical and physical world that we live in. And it's the spiritual realm. There's an ultimate reality behind everything that we experience in the world, and that's more fundamental, and that is God. So I want to illustrate God here. And since I'm not an artist and I don't know what God looks like, so I'll make a circle. We're going to call it God, okay? And then we have this over here, and we're going to call this, I guess we'll call it a universe. You have, in reality, you have God, and then you have everything else. And the two are, are separable. In other words, all of the universe is not God, and all of God is not the universe. And um, the universe includes everything that there is. You can, you know, the the world, the mountains, the water, people, the sun, the stars, the universe, spirits and angels, everything. Everything is this. Everything is over here. And then there is God. And there is a very distinction between God, who is the creator, and the created, which is everything else. And to understand sin, we need to understand this. That it's God is the eternal, which means he has no beginning and he has no ending. He is almighty, which means all might and all power comes from him. And he is the creator, which means there is nothing else that is outside of, that is created that he did not make. In other words, he has made everything. So, sorry, smartest woman, the universe is not everything there is. God is the ultimate reality, and he has made everything that there is. Every last atom or spirit that exists, and he did it well. He made a beautiful universe. You know, I want to just explain a little more. God... Then also created man and man likes to manipulate things. We like to take the stuff that God put us in. We like to make stuff and we like to make some really nice stuff. And I think of, um, I, I could think of a number of things, but I'm thinking a few like, take the intricate details of a Swiss watch and there's little tiny gears in there and they are precisely ordered and they're accurate. Or you could think of surgical equipment that has to be very precise. Or you could think of, I don't know too much about them, but the um, microchips, which are very, very tiny and very, very detailed and very, very precise. Mankind makes things. But if you take a microscope to them and you think this is a very precise instrument, take a gear of a Swiss watch that is very precisely made, and you turn the microscope on that thing. And the more you magnify it, the more flaws you see. The more flaws. And so you magnify it more. And those gears that look like so precise have all kinds of cuts and notches and things in them. <laughs> but you do that with what God has created. And you turn it onto a living thing. Or you can even turn it onto a rock or whatever you want to. And you Magnify that. The more you magnify the more amazing and complex it is. That is the difference between the created being and God. God is just that kind of um, amazing. They say each individual cell in the body has a transportation system in it that's more complex than the transportation system of New York City. Now, I can't verify that. I heard that. And that's pretty complex. I hope it works better (laughs) than it does in New York City. And then you might say, well, what does that have to do with sin? Well, we will not understand sin until we understand or know about the reality behind this physical world. Only in the context of God can sin exist. If there's no such thing as God, there is no such thing as sin. But since we know that there is a God, and he is, and that he created everything, now we are ready to ask again, well, what is sin? Is sin something you don't like? Is sin something or everything that's bad for you? If you step in a hole and break your leg, is that sin? Is the cancer that takes the life of a loved one sin? Is a tornado sin? Is someone, if you're in a line and someone cuts in line in front of you, is that sin? Now we're thinking a little bit more. How about if they don't turn your headlight, their high beams down when they're coming towards you? Is that a sin? You think that's a sin. Okay, that's illegal, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, God, who made everything and he did it perfectly, that the more you magnify, the more amazing it is. He gave us a word that the more it is magnified, the more amazing it is. Let's say it that way. God's word is that way. And so I took my concordance and I asked the question, um, put in "Sin is." <laughs> so what's sin? What would the Bible say sin is? And I came up with uh, a new, there were numerous ones, but there was one that directly spoke on it. You can turn to First John chapter three, verse four. This is more of a teaching this morning, obviously, but um, Trust it'll be beneficial to re- remind us all these truths of the Scripture. First John verse chapter three and verse four. Let's breaking right in here. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. To transgress means to do something illegal, so it's a violation of law. It would be like a trespasser who is, who goes beyond, it crosses a line or climbs a fence that he should not cross or climb. So, and it may be intentional or it may be unintentional, but it's to disobey in an area. But what is meant by the law? Sin is transgression of the law. So now we'll just look at this for a little bit. The law. Law means... Uh, It's a dictionary definition of law. It means a system of rules which a particular country or community recognizes as regulating the actions of its members and by which it may enforce by the imposition of penalties. So when we say sin is the transgression of the law, is this what we're talking about? The laws of a country? Uh, Clearly, we know that's not. Let's turn, it's not far from where we're at, James chapter 4, verse 12. If you're still open, James is just over a little bit. In verse 12 of James chapter 4, he said, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. So who art thou that judgest another? There's a lot of things in this verse, but among the one thing we have this truth, there is one lawgiver, and that's, of course, referring to God. This morning we sang a song, God is good, did we not? We sang a song, God is good. We also, no, no, God is love. That's the one we sang, sorry. (laughs) He is good, right? And he's love. And we say God is merciful. How often do you say God is a lawgiver? Have you ever thought of that? In, well, yeah, I'm sure you have, but maybe in that specific term. God is a lawgiver. In other words, God who made his creation, and obviously it's mankind specifically, but he made all the laws of the universe, then he made man, He has a will and a purpose for it all, and he gave laws to his creation. So that verse, sin is the transgression of the law. The Greek New Testament among has the word anomia, and it simply reads sin is lawlessness. It's a condition of being without law, contrary to law in violation of the law, or the rejection of the law. The refusal, refusal to submit to law. It can be something you are told not to do, or it can be something you are told to do, and you don't. So, here it is. Any attitude or action that holds the law of God in contempt, in contempt is sin. Any attitude or action that holds the law of God in contempt is sin. You can tell a child, don't go outside. But they do. You can tell a child, eat your food. And they refuse. They are in contempt of your law. But sin is not what makes us feel bad, so stepping in a post hole and breaking our leg does not is not sin. Neither is a tornado or a flood. It's not a sin for your dog to dig up your flowers. Sin is when a moral being, you or me, disobeys the commands of a superior being which is God. That is the law. Romans um, three twenty three. We're all familiar with that verse. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And reading at that at face value, you could get the idea that we need to match the glory of God, or we sin. Because God is very, very glorious and we fall short of the glory of God. We're sinning. But it's a practical definition is a little bit different. I'll give you the practical definition of that. The practical definition is we all fall short of God's glorious standard. God has a standard. He has a law. We can't match up to the glorious, to the glory of God, but God is saying that we also don't match up to his glorious standard that he has given to us. And then he says, all have sinned. And when we fail to live up to that standard perfectly, that is sin, and it makes us to be sinners. So we are familiar with the original sin, are we not? Adam and Eve were perfect, and they had one prohibition. Now, they had actually some commandments. I don't know if you are thinking over this. And they act the a commandment. He was told to uh, dress the garden, keep the garden. He told to have dominion. He was told to be fruitful and multiply. So he had some commandments. And one prohibition. We often think of sin as doing something that we shouldn't do. And that is correct. But Adam was told to do some things. What if he wouldn't have done that? What if he would have said, I'm not going to cultivate this garden? What if he would have picked Eve and started to beat her like some people do today? Would that have been sin? And say, yeah, that would have been sin. But he didn't even have an inkling. It was not in his heart to do that. Because why? Why didn't? Well, he he was, his heart was in tune with God. Adam was good to the core in a way that we are not. So God was a lawgiver even then. And here comes the devil. And he starts, you know, he comes charming. He comes just like sin sin comes and I, you know that that sin when it tempts you it entices you you know that it doesn't come as a hideous creature it doesn't show you the end it doesn't show you the guilt or the death it comes with a an enticement of some a promise of some pleasure or joy or Whatever it is, and that's how the devil came to Eve, and and just put doubt in her mind. Yea, hath God said? And after that was started, he just completely denied it. God. You will not die. Our Lord said of Satan that he is a liar, and he's the father of it. That's in John eight forty four. Here we see him in his very introduction. Uh, he introduction of sin into human race, he perverts the very word of God. The word of God is still perverted today by Satan, by the devil. We have the word of God today, but it is perverted by the devil in epidemic proportions. So sin ended the world when Adam ate from the tree God had prohibited him to eat from and as God promised he died and now here I'm going to give a quote from A.W. Tozer from man's standpoint the most tragic loss suffered from the fall was the vacating of the inner sanctum by the spirit of God at the far in hidden center of man's being is a bush fitted to be the dwelling place of the triune God there God planned to rest and glow with moral and spiritual fire. Man, by his sin, forfeited this indescribably wonderful privilege and must now dwell there alone. God left that inner sanctum of his heart and mankind is left alone. Adam died here and God left. And that Goodness that he had left with it because goodness is always connected to God. And all creation suffered in this fall. The world that we live in now, we do have tornadoes and broken legs and post holes. But this world is still pretty magnificent. You know, as you go I heard this illustration that if you go to England and look at those ancient castles, you know those those magnificent, huge buildings, but there's no windows in them, there's no doors in them, there's nobody living there, it's a shell. But it's you can look at them, wow, it's magnificent, but it's 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 empty and hollow. But as you Go to a little bit of a distance away and you sort of squint your eyes and you can imagine and you can imagine as you look at it with a little squinty eyes. You can see the windows and the doors and the curtains in there and you can see the royalty there and you can see the community buzzing around there and you can see a little bit of that original glory in your mind's eye. Well, that's a little bit how the world is. It's a fallen world and we've heard about it in Mary this morning and, and, and the tragedy and all the things that happened. But if you you can visualize what this world could be like if it would not be fallen. So it but it's only a shell of its former glory. It has some of its majestic splendor, but only a shell. So when Adam sinned, his inner nature was transformed by his sin of rebellion, bringing to him spiritual death and depravity, which is passed on to all of his children, all who came after him. And we are now sinful because of that sin nature. The sin nature is that aspect in man that makes him rebellious against God. When we speak of the sin nature, we refer to the fact that we have a natural inclination to sin. Given the choice to do God's will or our own will, we have a natural inclination to do our will, naturally, We are sinners, not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And you know, we have all the proof we need. You don't have to teach a child to lie or to be selfish. In fact, we go to great extents to teach them to tell the truth and to be kind because of their natural inclination. Simple name. Sinful behavior comes naturally. And the news is filled with tragic examples of mankind. And we don't have to, have to go out to the news. We, we have it in our own families and, uh, and so on. Wherever people are, there is trouble. Just as we inherit our physical characteristics from our parents, we inherited our sin nature from our parents, Adam. So sin is an intrusion. From Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, Genesis chapter 3, the whole way to Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter, you'll find sin there, but in there it's dealt with. So it's all persuasive. In fact, I think Genesis 3 is the most devastating chapter in the whole Bible. Everything bad that is in the world is because of that traumatic event. Now there is a difference between what some people describe sin and what God describes sin. There's a minister who excuses bad behavior. And you can call that sin or not, but it's bad behavior. And he calls it well, it's infantile environment that caused it. <laughs> Or it is traumatic experiences, or it is psychological complexes, or it's some other reasons. And the fact is, those things influence us. They do. But they are no excuse for sin. I have numerous co-workers who are, in their own eyes, good people. I don't know if you have any of them or not. This is their definition of good. If they treat me right, I treat them with right and with respect. If they put me across or treat me, then they'll get it. I'm a good person. I do not treat them badly if they don't treat me badly. Therefore, I am a good person. And that's a good person when you take God out of it. But there's even some that do better than that. You know, we can deceive ourselves. We can deceive each other. Our Lord said in Matthew Matthew 23, uh, 28, he said about some religious folks, even so, you also appear outwardly, appear righteous unto men. You look like you're good. You look like you are a righteous person. But within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And it's true, Brother Warren, it does come out eventually, <laughs> but it can be pretty deceptive. Some cinnamons for sin is transgression, we had that, missing the mark, we had that, evil, iniquity, corruption, which is something that was good and it got spoiled. Defiled, darkness, and blindness, and disobedience, and uncleanness, and lust, and pride, and lies, and deception, and impurity, and death, and unrighteousness. All of those are sin. Okay, number two. Why is that a problem? Why is sin a problem? Well, what happens when you break a law? What happens The girls don't do this. I'm going to ask the boys. What happens? You go 70 in a 55. Maybe nothing. Nobody saw you. Or maybe still nothing because it's not enforced. Or maybe it is enforced and you are stopped and you get a fine. Could be any of those three as far as breaking that law. Now, what happens when you break God's law? Nothing. What happens when we break God's law? What does that do? Have we ever lied or stolen or been lustful or angry or selfish or mean? Did you ever use God's name in vain or coveted someone else's things or their abilities? What happens when you violate God's law? Well, before the fall, God had warned Adam and Eve, in the day that thou eatest, thereof, thou shalt surely die. And there is a series of statements in the scriptures, and I'm just going to summarize a series of statements in the scriptures that talks about that. It's to remind men throughout human history of this solemn effect of sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel eighteen four Wherefore as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned Romans five twelve. For the wages of sin is death Romans six twenty three. And when lust hath conceived it bringeth forth sin, and when sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death James one fifteen. The guilty sinner cannot escape this divine sentence as it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment that talks about physical death, and then it talks about judgment. So sin against an infinitely holy God deserves and gets capital punishment. A capital punishment is not a word that we use very much anymore. Capital means simply it's the top punishment you can get in, in, in uh, human society. Capital punishment means the death penalty. You can't do more. The state can't do more than kill you. That's the capital punishment. So, but... A sin against God deserves and gets also capital punishment. So we might ask, why is sin a problem? And this is why: there's a judgment coming, and there is a death coming. And we might ask, well, what kind of death? So we have the word of a loving Jesus saying, in Matthew 25:41. I think if you if you want to, you can actually turn there because we'll go over this verse. I might be good to have your, your words on it because we'll get a few phrases out of this verse. Matthew twenty five forty one, very familiar. And I'm just going to drop in here. Then shall he say also unto them on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That is the words of the loving Jesus. Sin, a disobeying God, has consequences that do not end. There will be a judgment in which everyone who has disobeyed God will come to, and all will stand before this throne. And sinners will be ordered. Depart. Leave. Go. Get out of here. Get away from me. Get out of my presence. Your chances are over. You are cursed forever. These are the words that will reverberate. In the judgment halls of heaven. And where to? To everlasting fire? Really? Did Jesus actually say that? Did Jesus say? Yeah, he did. How can that be? How can a loving God send people to hell? Why would a loving God send people to hell? Sin is like cancer. I'm going to use this illustration to describe this. God created a very good world and sin came in when man disobeyed God. Now we have a part of creation that is actually working against the health of the body. We have something in creation that is actually destroying creation. It's like cancer. Cancer is when the body's own cells work. They no longer follow orders from headquarters. It's the body's own cell that no longer follows direction of the laws of the body. And, you know, cancer is a part of the body. But it no longer listens to the body. And then it grows and it. Destroys, cancer destroys, cancer cripples and debilitates, and cancer kills. How much love do you have for cancer? When it evades you or someone you love. See, cancer is not a foreign substance. How can you hate? part of yourself and try to kill part of yourself. Why would you do that? It's a part of you. Why would you hate it and try to kill it? Because that's what we do with cancer, isn't it? It's because a part of you has become perverted. It's it's, a part of you has become a transgressor. It has become wicked. It has become defiled. A part of you does not obey the laws of the body. It's outside the control and direction of the body and it will kill you. Would you not, if you could, say these words, depart, leave, get away from here, get out of here. I'm tired of your presence. Get out of my presence. If you could say that to cancer, wouldn't you? Yes, you would. Because it's destructive. You hate it. Rightfully so. Do you love cancer? No. You love the person, but not the cancer. Not the part that destroys him. God loves his perfect creation. And he hates What destroys his creation. He loves mankind which he made to fellowship with. And to uh, interact with and for mankind to worship him. And mankind to do his bidding. And he loves mankind. But he hates what destroys that. So God is good. Everything that he gave is everything that's needed. But when men refuse or persist in refusing him and reject his will for them, they are working against the very laws of the universe and they must be removed. There is no future for them in God's eternal future bliss. Because you think, well, they're not removed until they die. No, Death is not the end. There is a whole future that God has. But the cancer will be removed. Every last bit of it. There is no future for them in God's eternal future bliss. Who else must be removed to this everlasting fire? The words ye depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, hell was not made for people, and you probably knew that. But here, right here it is. The devil, along with a huge number of angels, rebelled against God before Adam and Eve fell. Jude six says, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved into everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. There is a judgment coming for those fallen angels. Now, I'm not sure what it means by reserved in chains of darkness because we know that angels or demons are alive and are at work. In Matthew 8:29, we heard this one, this demonic man, um, were that these demons were in this man. They cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Out art thou come to hither to torment us before the time? <laughs> so maybe the everlasting chains of darkness it means that they are restricted from the goodness and the blessing and the salvation of God. They have no hope, and they're chained there to do their evil work. But they are certain in both passages that they know their day is coming. There's a final judgment coming. So they say, art thou come to torment us before the time? And Jesus didn't. He just told them to go to those other animals, those hogs, those pigs, those swine, So God prepared this place of everlasting fire for the devil and his angels, the demons. Then man joined the devil in his rebellion. So it is perfectly natural for God to put them in the same place for punishment. Now, did you know that the demons are wiser than most people? They know a judgment is coming, and they tremble with terror. But most people are nonchalant about judgment. Not a big deal. We don't make a big deal. And the final judgment is there in Revelation 20. I think I'll read it in uh, Revelation 2010 to 15. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that is the answer to the question, why is sin a problem? Sin is a problem. Sin is a major, major problem. And then we go, what is the answer? (laughs) What is the answer? I started the message with the bumper slogan, Jesus is the answer. Most people don't know what the problem is, but this is the problem. God created a perfect world. Man rebelled against his rule. We were born in that lineage, and we have become practicing sinners ourselves. We have sided with the devil against God. We are like cancer to God's ruling kingdom. God hates whatever is ruinous to his creation, and he is going to take us out for good eternally in fire. But Jesus is the answer. The devils have no answer. They are in chains. They are chained in everlasting darkness. But we have an answer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not love. The fallen angels that way. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, came from the glories of heaven into this cancer-ridden world. It's something, ridden world, which is full of it. But he came to rid it of it. <laughs> it's a play on words. But he came in this cancer-ridden world. Like Adam, he had no sin nature. He did not have the predisposition to sin because he had no earthly father. So he did not come participating in the rebellion of the devil and everyone else. And that is important to know. But the devil knew about this. And so he goes after Jesus, just like he did after Adam and Eve. He went after Jesus and he went after Jesus with all he had. I mean, talk about a. A cosmic battle. Those temptations in the wilderness, depending what your theological um, underpinnings are, (laughs) what for, I can't think of the words right now, but there's different streams of theology and there are different ways of looking at that, but those temptations in the wilderness were for the battle of this cosmos. It was for the battle of the future of this world. Cuz the devil was after Jesus in the same way that he was after Adam and Eve. And Jesus had to win it. Then also in the garden before his crucifixion there was the tremendous battle that sweat as drops of blood. That was our Lord Jesus. That is some of the cost some of the cost of what he went through for us to make it open for us to have a way but the Lord Jesus did not fail in Hebrews 4.15 he said he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin and when he died when he went to that cross and when he died victorious victory was won that At that point, and he said it is finished, it was finished because he had won the victory. The devil was defeated. Jesus went to the grave. His blood was shed at the perfect sacrificial lamb. And the father's wrath against sin has been satisfied for all who believe in Jesus. Then he rose from the grave. And this is, of course, the... the, uh, The proof that he had won the victory is the resurrection. The resurrection was the proof of the victory that was won. Everyone else that died stays dead unless God raises them up for whatever reason. But here was the first of the second of the resurrection, a never to die, a spiritual body. It's the proof. He had conquered the devil. He had conquered sin. He had conquered death. In fact, there is nothing the Lord Jesus did not conquer. And he is over everything now. As uh, it says, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. And that is why, because he won. Now, this salvation is won for all those who believe in Jesus. And now I have six points of how that is done. So this is the gospel message. Six points. I'm going to read a verse here that just gives the first part. Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. Now, after that, John was put into prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, ye, and believe the gospel. Time is at hand. Repent. And believe. And that's very much in a nutshell. So first, number one, I'm going to give one word or several words and then just give a description of it. First is repent. We are a sinner. We We have sinned. We are facing the judgment. Repent. Repentance is a combination of deep sorrow over how our personal sin has offended a holy God and a change in behavior which forsakes sin. God saves people from their sins, but not in their sins. Sin must be acknowledged as sin. So, your greed, your immorality, your pride, your rebellion, and all other sin must be confessed as sin and renounced. And forsaken, especially the fundamental sin of being your own boss. You need to confess that as sin. I've run my own life. God does forgive sin, but he does not forgive excuses. If you refuse to face your own sin, you will never be saved. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Second is surrender. Repent, then surrender. There must be a complete, utter committal of the whole life to Christ in faith. Commit your whole life to Christ in faith. Every one of those phrases is important. This is exactly what it means to believe in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus, this is what you do. It involves a volitional choosing and an emotional attachment to him, to the Lord Jesus, accompanied by a firm purpose to obey him in all things. This requires that we keep his commandments, that we carry our cross, that we love God and love our fellow man. And I, I know it many years ago it was explained to me, and this is actually part of it was part of what it was one of the one of the nuggets, one of the pieces of the puzzle for my own assurance of salvation. Let me say it that way. That is God gives you a blank sheet of paper. It's a contract. It's a contract that you will do whatever is in this paper, but it's blank. And you sign it at the bottom. I will do whatever is on this paper. And then God fills it in. Because you have just signed your life away. I will do what God says. Absolute surrender. And the fact that that became an element of my life is also a part of the assurance that God gives. Third is three words, reckon by faith. First, we repent then surrender, then reckon by faith. There must be a reckoning of ourselves to have died unto sin and be alive unto God in Christ Jesus. To, to, to get that fleshed out, you would have to read all of Romans chapter 6. In baptism, you were, you were buried with him, and in the resurrection, you rise again. <clears throat> and you need to reckon that your body is dead to sin. There is a faith element there. I reckon it so. It's followed then by a deliberate walk after the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and there you have Romans 8. Those who walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh They are the sons of God, Well those that have the spirit are the sons of God. So we must practice whatever self-discipline is required to walk in the spirit and trample under our feet the lust of the flesh. And the Lord Jesus gave us examples of that. He said, if your eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. That is what it means to reckon by faith, do whatever is necessary to walk with God. Fourth is separation. We must boldly repudiate the cheap values of the fallen world and become completely detached in spirit from everything that unbelieving man sets their hearts upon. Allowing ourselves only the simplest enjoyments of nature, which God has bestowed alike upon the just and the unjust. I'll repeat that a little later. It's a long saying, but what it means basically is love, not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life is not of the father, but it's of the world. Separation, we must boldly repudiate the cheap values of the fallen world and become completely detached from the spirit in spirit, from everything that unbelieving man men set their hearts upon. Allowing ourselves only the simplest enjoyments of nature which God has bestowed alike upon the just and the unjust. That could be a message in itself. In fact, the message of separation can be definitely a message in itself. Fifth is devotion. We must continually and persistently cultivate a close devotional relationship with the God of the universe. See, God is a person who can be known in increasing degrees of intimate acquaintances as we spend time with him, as we prepare our hearts for him, and as we gaze and this is actually, I think, where that song comes in at. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. That's this kind of devotion. And the separation will follow. The things of this world will go strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. And number six, the last point here is service. As our knowledge of God becomes more wonderful, Greater service to our fellow men will become imperative for us. This blessed salvation that you and I have experienced is not meant for us alone. It's meant to be shared. And the more perfectly we know God, the more we will feel the desire to translate this newfound knowledge into deeds of mercy to suffering humanity. I think the think of Mary at the moment, obviously that's some of what it is. All this is possible because God gives us a new nature when we come to him in repentance and faith. God gives us a new nature. And it doesn't mean that yeah, it doesn't mean that we're not tempted to sin, that that all of Adam's influences are gone. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean we have a new nature because we have his spirit in us, and his judgment is a verdict. And instead of the judgment coming, we have this verse, a very familiar verse. Matthew twenty three thirty four. Then shall this king say unto them in his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. This was prepared for the people of God. There's a kingdom prepared. That's what a... John 14 says um, uh, in my father's house are many mansions. I go and prepare a place for you and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you there. That is the promise of all who come for that salvation. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery after all her accusers left? Jesus then said, "Woman, where are your accusers? Had no man condemned thee?" And she said, "No man, Lord." And he said, "Neither do I condemn thee." Uh, there was that song. I can't blessed words, divine. I can't think of that words of that song, but that's one song that's about this. That neither do I condemn thee. That are words of mercy to sinners who have offended God. Neither do I condemn thee. And then the words, go and sin no more. Go and now walk in that reality. And, of course, we, we haven't even talked about, we, are, we focus mostly on the future judgment, we haven't even talked about very much about how, how this is played out, worked out in the church how God's kingdom now on earth, that the Lord Jesus set up his kingdom on earth and we have a purpose here and we haven't talked about that. That's the whole other element. But I just wanted to um, bring you the gospel here this morning. So the devil does not have the love that was given to us. We have the gospel. So we have three things. We have what is sin? So why is that a problem? And then we have, what is the answer? And Jesus is the answer. May God bless you and may we prosper in that gospel.